Welcome to The Grill Podcast. My name is John King, and I'm the host of the agronomy segment of our podcast. Thank you for joining me here on this, this second month of, of getting the podcast going. Today, joining me on the podcast, we have Dan Bjorklund, our grow agronomy and precision lead within the Grow Solutions Center here at Landis. Also, I have Josh Linfield, director of fertilizer at StoneX, and Parker Edgington, an agronomist here in the state of Iowa with Yara. This week, we're going to dive into the near-term issues around late planning. Also, we're going to do a small quick update on chemistry markets and what we're seeing there with issues in China. We're then going to transition to our major topic here this week around fall fertilizer price outlook and trying to help everybody understand um, the headwinds we have on the way with the Russia and Ukraine out, or conflict. And finally, we're going to be finishing with the product of the month. All right, kicking off our you know normal month-to-month business planning segment, kind of around the entire agronomy business, I got Dan Bjorklund from the Growth Solutions Center here with me today. Um, I'm going to kind of give everybody a little bit of a small chemistry update. And then, you know, obviously, Dan, we've been talking a lot about it. Guys are looking at fall prices and, on fertilizer already. And the first comment I'm continuing to get is we're going to make cuts. Prices are too high. We're going to make the cut. And, you know, I get it. I understand. But I think I think it's good for everybody to have some background and some opinion from yourself around why that shouldn't happen. So we're going to get into that along with primarily because, you know, again, the, the major focus on this this month's podcast is around what that fall outlook looks for, like for pricing as well on dry P&K and as we reset to summer for nitrogen prices. So, you know, kind of get into the chemistry thing real quick. This has been the most challenging thing I've ever dealt with in my life from a supply standpoint. One, again, a fertilizer guy in the chemistry world. Why do we have to have so many SKUs? You know, I'm used to six products that we're usually selling. And, you know, it comes in every pack size known to man. And you can't get package, but you can get totes. But but then you can get totes, but you can't get bulk. And it has been an absolute mess. One thing I think everybody should kind of have a little bit of an idea toward as we go to, you know, transition out of this spring to next next year. There's some key AIs that I think are, are already going to be an issue for next year. So I want to make sure that we brought that up here. From where I sit today, acetochlor is going to be an issue next summer on summer fill and all the way through till planting of next year. It's already been really brought to attention by Bayer. Just in general, that molecule is going to be super tight. So if acetochlor is tight, aspetalochlor is going to be tight, armetalochlor is going to be tight, those go hand in hand. That's going to be an issue for next year. The glyphosate issue with the lockdowns in China that have happened here recently, that's maybe going to get slightly better, but not great. The other one is going to continue to be an issue are the 2,4-Ds, the dicambas, and the atrazines. It's been a common thing this year from where, where I sit today. That's not getting better next year. And along with a lot of this, you know, from what I've seen this year, it's not only is the AI tight, but the labor is tight in order to formulate and make these products, package them. That's been a lot of issues with a lot of package products this summer, or excuse me, the spring is there just hasn't been enough people at the line to actually physically pack the stuff. So um, for those that are listening, reach out to reach out to us here at Landis if you got some concerns around that already for next year. We're trying to put some plans together. So Dan, I'm bringing you in. All right. You've got 40 some years of experience around this. You've seen it all. Guys are already telling me they're cutting their fertilizer rates for fall because they don't or they they don't like the risk on the product. It's too high a price. You know, let's take price completely out of the conversation for this, okay? Let's just pretend that potash is zero and corn is zero. You know, what are you seeing it from your side around 
What is your caution to farmers as they say, I don't want to put this stuff down. It's too high a price. What are the essentially the net effects of that decision? Well, hey, thanks, John. Um, it's great to be with you. I'm really passionate uh, in this area of agronomy. Um, and so the first thing I'm going to say is that we can't possibly cover the total topic in the next five to 10 minutes. So I'm going to put a shout out for learning groups yep. that we have been advertising that we're, that we, we have been talking about that will be held this summer. Talk to your account leads about how you can get involved with those, but we will take a very deep dive in the whole fertility area. And the one thing I'd add to that too, is if, if you're outside our, our network and listening, 515-800-GROW, you can get Dr. Dan here himself and he will sign you up. So if, you, if you're outside our network and don't have any direct access to one of our account leads, 515-800-GROW. And we had several calls after the last podcast through the, the 800 number. So yes, yes, uh, call. We'll, we'll, we'll spend some time with it. Potash, potassium. We, we know that NP and K are all important. So are the micronutrients. You need the right amounts of each of those uh, macro and micronutrients uh, to grow uh, the yields that we want. And obviously with our discussion here, we need a good growing season. We need a good production year. And uh, we don't know what the weather is gonna be like. One of the things that's key with potassium is that it's the water regulator for that plant. We've talked in the past about the plant being a plant factory. The assembly line is the root system and potassium is the regulator. So when you look at where yield comes from, there's a term called evapotranspiration. That is movement of the water and moisture through the root system, up through the plant and out the leaves. And that's what brings the fertility in. Those are the raw materials that go to building those proteins and starches that go into the ear that basically we harvest and that's what we make our money on. Without the right and correct amounts of potassium in that plant, that whole system shuts down or, or, or gets messed up because potassium regulates those openings, those, sto those stomates that are the openings that regulate evapotranspiration. Gotta have potassium. All the data that I looked at in preparation for this podcast, looking at potassium indicates that you almost can't put on enough potassium. I know we're talking about uh, the prices, but uh, you can't go wrong in putting on potassium because what you don't use this year, if you if you have levels that are already high, goes into the checking account for 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 the the, the next couple of years. So potassium is critical. Here's another piece that we'll talk about this summer that you probably heard nobody discuss when it comes to potassium. And that is the connection with potassium and the genetics connection. Mm. On the uh, hybrids? And, and the hybrids. There are hybrids out there based upon where they were developed in these areas that had high levels of potassium already naturally occurring that developed basically high, uh, high needs for potassium. And there are others that don't show this. And you can see it in the summertime. Last year, we had areas that we ran out of moisture in the top six inches, which is where most of the potassium is located. And there were hybrids side by side, some showing the potassium deficiencies on the outsider, the out, outer edges of the lower leaves, and others not showing that. That indicates to you that I have a hybrid that is basically a luxury consumer of potassium. It's just because that's the way the genetics are. Without having enough potassium for that particular hybrid, you probably dropped, who knows, 10, 15, 30 bushels or more uh, at the end of the season. And 
Then we look at things like the edge effect, where people were saying, okay, I had soybeans planted south and west of my corn, and some hybrids were in the end rows and into the field 20, 30, up to 60, even 80 bushels uh, less. Which ones of those hybrids were the ones that were potassium hogs in the first place? And could, could that have made a difference? Not knowing that going into this next season, not even knowing what the genetics are that, that, that we're planting. If I knew that either my fields or a neighbor has soybeans planted south or west, I know this is going to sound crazy, John. This is going to sound a little crazy at, at this stage. You might want to go in with 100 or 150 pounds of potassium right around those edges right now. Just before on the edges. Just on the edges or maybe even into the field a little bit, not knowing what the season's going to be like because potassium does regulate the moisture and it, it, it sort of is, has an ability to uh, lessen stress when we have stressful years. And we don't know what's going to happen. And the worst thing that happens is that you put that extra amount of potassium on, we have a great production year and you just produce more yield anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, that would be uh that'd be uh, a hard thing to have, right? At $7 corn, if, if you, if that was the mistake you made, but no, I think those are all important things. And I think, again, that's the importance around what you're doing with on the learnings, um, the grower learning sessions and really trying to build that up. I mean, I think, Again, you know, with everything happening globally, you know, there's nothing we can stop or there's nothing we can control outside of our own sphere. But what we can control is maximizing our output on the acres that we have here in central Iowa. And, you know, the best way to do it is together through these learning groups and really kind of digging into these things that are the next level. Like we talked on the last podcast, biologicals, that whole market is about doing five things to add two to three to five bushels a piece not one thing to add 50 a piece. And I think the biggest thing that the market is still calling on from the United States market is for big production. And I appreciate your comments around what that means if we're going to be making cuts on our fertility plants. You bet. All right, transitioning to our main topic of the day, we're having some deep deck conversations about a fall outlook for fertilizer prices. And joining me is Josh Linville, Twitter handle jlinvillefert on Twitter from StoneX. He's the director of fertilizer for StoneX and a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of unbiased knowledge here uh, as well. So, uh, Josh, thanks for coming and being on the podcast with us. And why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a background on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd really appreciate it next time if you could have it to where it isn't a quarter mile visibility all the way up from Kansas City. That'd be super. Yeah. I came to Iowa wanting to see like green and everything, and all I could see was smoke in front of me. Yeah, that was pretty rough this morning. Yeah, it was. So, yeah, a little bit of background on myself. I've been in the industry now for 20 years. Uh, I grew up on a farm in northwest Missouri. I uh, went to the University of Missouri. Don't hold that against me. And then it got sucked right back in the ag uh, part of the world. And I started out with a company called DeBruce in Kansas City. Uh, I had an opportunity to work for Coke for a couple of years in Wichita. Went to work for a company called Tramo, who at that time was the leading fertilizer trader in the world. So a great view of the world marketplace. From there, I uh, went to Australia, worked for a company in Melbourne for about six months, decided, you know, a couple of younger boys and we were going to be 24 hours away from the family. Some things in life are a little more important. So came back here, started up with StoneX and uh, yeah, we're been at it ever since. It's uh, been a whirlwind here the last, let's say, 18 months. It just doesn't stop the last 18 months. No, it's, I mean, you talk to people who've been in this industry 30, 40, 50 years, and every single one of them say the same thing. I've never seen anything like this. I think the, the truly the hardest thing is 
for everybody to wrap around their minds is, you know, we're in such an age where supply, Amazon brings it the next day, whatever it may be. And we are really in a supply vacuum. And, you know, from your seat, you know, again, unbiased opinion to what we're looking at here. What are your comments or sound bites for the farmer of tomorrow and how do they navigate through this this market? You know, here at Atlanta's, we've come out with some dry prices for fall. You know, we're trying to give our farmer owners or just anybody that wants to do business with us an opportunity with high grain prices, even looking out to 23 to be able to hedge that buy it and sell, and sell grain. I mean, well, from where you're at, what what should the farmers of tomorrow be thinking about? And, and especially in such a, a volatile, tough market to navigate. This is going to sound really weird, but the number one thing we've been advising, we've been talking for the last 12 months, almost solely, your biggest danger is not the high cost or low cost of grain, the high cost, low cost of fertilizer supply, any of that stuff. Your biggest danger is about six inches above your shoulders. Mm-hmm your own mind, your own emotion. And because when you look at it, these fertilizer prices are about as high as we've ever seen. Inputs are about as high as we've ever seen. And grain markets are going insane. Grain markets are right there with it. Yeah, so everything is just, it's throwing us into a tizzy and it's really easy to lose our mind. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to get flummoxed to a certain extent. The biggest thing we've been saying is when it comes down to it, we need to take a step back and look logically and rationally at the marketplaces and pick our spots. Whether that's risk management, whether that means, you know, to your point, if you're going to buy the fertilizer, we probably need to look at selling some grain against it. Because while today's ratios are not fantastic, we looked at the last five years, but it can get significantly worse if we buy the fertilizer and that corn price goes from seven bucks down to four bucks. Does it look likely today? No, no. But we said the same thing back in 08. Right. I think the drastic differences between the market we're operating in today is civilization has never seen anything like this from the standpoint of a conflict in a in a breadbasket of Europe, basically. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, when I think about it in, you know, my biggest thing when I'm looking at the market today from a fertilizer standpoint, it's never seen a conflict that has restricted so much supply from one of the lowest cost producers in the world. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the U.S. market. Yes, we are a low cost producer. Absolutely, we are. Russia is a very low cost producer as well. And, you know, in general, it's hard to fathom that much low cost supply just coming out of the market completely. So, you know, when you when you think about those things, in my mind, it it creates a lot harder opportunity for farmers to really gauge, you know, yes, prices could collapse. But a lot of times if you have those low cost suppliers in the market, it's a lot easier to collapse that at that point than when they're not available in the market. The the biggest thing we have been trying to explain to people is that this is a fundamentally different market than anything we have ever seen. Again, I don't care if you've been in this for five years, 10, 20, 40 years. This is a fundamentally tightly supplied fertilizer market. It's a fundamentally tightly supplied grain market. Grain market, same way. We've theorized about it. We've talked about this in high school classes and college classes and over beers at the bar. We've never actually had it. But when you look at it, We've lost Russian exports because of their uh, their invasion of the Ukraine. We've lost Chinese exports because the government is restricting uh, exports to happen because they're, they're taking care of their own people. They want to make sure that they have food supply for themselves. Right. And all of a sudden there, you talk about urea. The combination of those two no longer exporting means we've lost 25% of our export total globally. Yep. Not just here, globally. Phosphate is almost 50%. Potash, Belarus and uh, Russia account for 40% of the, the global total export. Huge numbers. I mean, these are type of numbers. If you threw those percentages on the grain market, yeah, we'd be talking twenty dollars corn today. 
Well, and I, you know, and I think about that too. Yeah, you. So you put it on the grain market. I mean, you're talking about world food scarcity. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're relating it to the same numbers, and I think the biggest thing too is there's only one true person in the market that can hedge fertilizer, and that is the farmer because he can buy it and then sell his grain against it to then take that kind of a hedge position. You know, for me and my seat, where I have to look at truly procuring the product to service the farmer owners. One, we have huge supply challenges. So I look at, again, just to pick one product, you know, that we're going to talk about today. Potash is the scariest one of them all because Belarus and Russia combined are the largest producer of potash in the world. And, you know, from our side, the only way that we could get their product was via the river system. So you're looking at 1.5 to 2 million tons a year that you would come in on the river system or coastally. And supply, I mean, and you, when you think about the Iowa farmer, that's the river system is relevant to how we farm here in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana. I mean, so when you start thinking about the fact that those tons aren't going to be there, and then on top of the rail challenges we're having today with the UP, mm-hmm. this is not a, I'm going to wait until October and then I'm going to make my decision then. Because from our side, there's only so much risk now with these higher prices we can take. You know, I think from the retail st- standpoint, our due diligence we need is to constantly have a price for the farmer so he can buy forward. He can sell grain against it if he wants to. And we can manage the logistics because if we try to manage the logistics in October, we will, we will, none of us will succeed in that battle. Yep. And one thing, I'm going to say this, and I'm not, you're listening so you can't see me. I'm not sucking up to John when I make this statement. But to a certain extent, from a farming vantage point, it's a little bit like looking at a duck on water. And from the farmer, he's always seen that fertilizer just be in place. It's mm-hmm. at the warehouse. It's in the storage. It's ready to go when season gets there. And from above the water, you're looking at it and just it flows smoothly. All you see is a little bit of a wake and it moves from point A to point B with nothing going on. What we don't see is from underneath the water. That duck is kicking like hell to get from that point A to point B. Right. And all of this risk and all this stuff, because trust me, I get it from a fertil- uh, from a farming perspective. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter was not a whole lot of fun at our house because we had everybody over. And of course, my dad, my uncles are all cornering me. What's going on? Why is this yep. all happening? Everybody has the same type of questions. It's risky for the farmer. It absolutely is. It's even riskier because the retailer is having to buy this stuff and just sit on it and hope and pray the farmer shows up and pays the money. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't, you're stuck with it. Yep. Traders to a certain extent. I mean, it, it, let's face it, like anything in the world, it all flows downhill. Yeah, and I think it's the biggest thing, too, is globally the amount of risk tolerance that is out there now. You think back 18 months ago, we had potash at all-time lows, phosphates at all-time lows. The amount of risk people could go take on the same amount of cash at that point was pretty significant. Now, even for the people that want to bring import product to the United States, that risk tolerance is very small. So they're not bringing it here unless they can sell it to an end user like ourselves either. And I think it's just when you start to build all this up in the grain market, seeing it the same way. I mean, you know, when you talk about $7 corn and, you know, shoot, $16 beans, you know, there's only so much that they can go out and take risk on and position on. Mm-hmm. You know, I know from our side, it's it's always a tough day when you're sitting on a long corn position and the market keeps going against you on your short edge and you're waiting for that delivery period and, it, the, you know, you just can yep. keep consuming money. I think the biggest thing that when I look at the risk that's associated with the market today, there's the farmer is going to have to pick and choose its battles, right? Yep. And land's going to be a battle. Chemistry, for some extent, is going to be a battle. Fertilizer is going to be a battle. And profitability today is significantly better than it was two years ago. 
And it's still, even if you sold your crop today for 23, it's still significantly better than it was two years ago, even at these high prices. So I think the biggest thing is when I look at the P and K side of it, yeah, there could be cuts that could be had on the phosphate side maybe, but you know, we've seen it time and time again throughout the Midwest around, you know, potash always pays. Mm -hmm. And I think you see it globally too, where the Brazilian farmer with a lot of this ground that he's just brought into production over the last five years, Again, I don't see how they can just all of a sudden, they, they don't have the the nutrient bank banked up like a lot of the Midwest farmers have that they've been farming this ground for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. That ground's new five years ago. Yep. He's going to farm it. He's going to fertilize it. And he's going to try to produce as big a crop as he possibly can. And today we're trading at a $400 a ton discount on potash to Brazil. Mm-hmm. We're trading at a discount to Southeast China on standard grade potash, which I've never seen in my life. The opportunity for potash to increase versus decrease is higher, in my opinion, with what's happening globally. Yeah, and there's been a lot of questions, and we see that on the potash side. We see this on the phosphate side. We see this on the nitrogen side. And it's really, again, when we look at it from a U.S. perspective, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, we're so high priced. I can't believe it. And that's absolutely correct. It's some of the highest prices we've ever seen. Yep. But again, we are part of a global marketplace, mm-hmm. and we are some of the cheapest product out there. I know that's Absolutely insane to say. I never thought I'd be looking at today's prices and saying, boy, we're cheap. Yeah. That's where we're at. But to a certain extent, I think that the U.S. North American marketplace is a little bit of a safe haven. Yes. If I'm an international producer today and I'm producing product and I'm making more money than I could have ever dreamed about. Right. There's going to be fertilizer owners that are buying yachts that we could even imagine. Right. But if I'm looking at it and I've got an opportunity to send it to some place like in India or in Africa or something like that at a premium or I can send it to the US, I'm gonna take that $100, $200 ton discount and I'm gonna go to the US because I know my bills get paid. I don't have to worry about that. But to your point, if things continue to get tighter and tighter and tighter, those guys are gonna start making the decision, say heck with it. I'll go make the extra 300. I'm gonna get the second helipad made on my yacht. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, definitely there is gonna be countries that are gonna find security in the currency of the dollar. Yes. There's no doubt about that. You know, my biggest worry is what happens in the Chinese markets, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, China's or China and India together are the largest consumers of potash in the world. And they've got a pretty well, they have a pretty well fixed contract today mm-hmm. um, on what they're going to get delivered. And it's a pretty a cheap price. So, you know, again, they're going to take delivery of that full contract. They're going to negotiate a low mm-hmm. price on the next round. And people are going to commit because they want the demand. I think for the U.S. market with what, again, you know, Everything that comes from Canada has to come here via rail. Mm-hmm. So it's going to come down on the CP or the CN. It's going to get to a yard. It's going to sit in the yard. If you're sitting on the BN or the UP or the CSXT or something else where you got to be brought in here, the rail challenges on single cars we're seeing today are just, I mean, unfathomable. So I think obviously with where prices are at, there's going to be cuts for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. farmers are going to cut rates. There's going to be some acres cut. But I don't think those the market's telling them to cut acres because the supply is not there. And I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest thing that everybody has to understand. The market will inflict as much pain as humanly possible to stop demand. The other side of where I see it, I do see people making some cuts. But if you're still looking at a D23 and you can sell six and a quarter cash today and you can buy 800 plus dollar potash and you can make $100 an acre, Two years ago, we were hoping for break even. Mm-hmm. You know, on ground you own, you might make four hundred dollars an acre. So, 
you know, it's just things like that. At, at what point in time, this year could be an extremely great year for the U.S. farmer. What is, you know, from a cash standpoint, what are you going to have to do to, to alleviate tax burden or whatever this fall? Yeah. So, I mean, I think those are just the things when you think about, yes, prices are high, but there's almost enough side of it where there's going to be enough momentum in the next six months to help state to keep them stabilized, at least where they're at. Yep. And that's the thing. It, it's the grain market. Every time we sit there and look at it and we say the potash price, for example, is too high. Look at where the grain prices are. It doesn't support it. Well, all of a sudden, two, three days later, the yeah. price is up 50, 60 cents. It's like, well, you said you weren't going to buy that. Well, that was Tuesday, Josh. This is Thursday, Josh. This is a different decision. And so they can, the, the bar keeps moving. That line keeps moving on us. And from a certain extent, we also have to keep in mind, this is more of take the emotion away, whole picture type stuff. If you make the decision, I am going to cut my potash application rate and I'm going to save $10 per acre. That's great. And if the soil can handle it, that's good. If you right now lose just two bushel yield at the end of the year potential per acre, that more than that's the actual full product loss because corn right now is what, six, seven dollars for yep. uh, D23. Yep. You know, seven plus for D22. You're talking about losing $14 to save $10. Right. So again, it's it, it always comes back to that. It's an emotion. Make sure that we're not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I think it's, it's yes, fertilizer prices are at all-time highs, no doubt, but so are grain prices, right? Mm-hmm. So get them while they're good. Yeah. Get them while they're good now because, yeah, every high prices do cure high prices. You know, globally, we're going to see demand cuts on grain, no doubt, because, again, high prices cure high prices. The market has to inflict enough pain to yep. kill demand. And, yeah, there's going to be a correction, but profitability is hard to not stare down. I was sitting here on the way up here trying to figure out if we rip all these cables out from, uh, you know, between the interstate system on I-35 up to Des Moines, how many acres of corn could that be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right down the middle. Yeah. That's, I mean, but that's what the corn market's trying to do. That's what the bean and the so- and the wheat and everything else is trying to do. It's trying to say, I need everything you can possibly produce. Yep. And I am trying to reward you. Do what you can. Right. That means you put on enough fertilizer to make sure you can maximize that crop. What about, you know, th- looking out on nitrogen prices? I mean, do you see some downside this summer that's going to alleviate some pain on where we're at for current nitrogen prices? From our standpoint as land is today, I would say our ammonia run in whole has been somewhat disappointing mm-hmm. from a demand standpoint. Um, to me, I, when I look at that, that, that probably lends more toward some carryover inventory in the system at the manufacturing level, especially on the ammonia side. On the other side, I'd say UAN has been... Demand has been good, but not enough to offset what we're down on ammonia. So what's your opinion on summer nitrogen resets? Same thing on the anhydrous. We're not seeing it be the great anhydrous run we thought it was going to be. So we think that's going to be a little bit of carryover into the summer. The problem is we had already forecasted that we were going to end the spring with about as low of urea and UAN supplies as we've ever seen. And if all of a sudden you start cutting your anhydrous forecast, well, that means you need that much more on urea UAN. It takes two and a half ton of UAN to make up for one ton of anhydrous. It takes 1.8 ton of urea to make up for one ton of anhydrous. So you can start to see where those demand numbers balloon very, very quickly in a short amount of time, when frankly, it's too late to get anything coming in from overseas. So we're still anticipating going into the summertime, assuming the grain prices hold. I think we'll see values down a little bit, but a lot of people are under the understanding, oh, this is going to go back down to those summer of 2020 levels. No, it's we've got to remember over the last 18 months, I've got an entire PowerPoint slide of all the things that have happened from then till now to get us where we are today. We're not going to solve it in you know a couple months with one big event. 
I think that's a good sounding point is there's been so many things that have happened to get us here. You can't just wipe them away in a few months. And unfortunately, you know, the grain market, it can. I mean, if the grain market wants to push prices lower, man, when that snowball gets rolling, it will roll. You know, again, with the fertilizer side of the market being such a heavy physical demand or physically logistical business, mm-hmm. no different than grain, other than, you know, grain has a hedgeable, is a hedgeable commodity. The fertilizer side is just, it takes, it takes a lot longer to mm-hmm. depreciate that price. You know, 08, when you look across the, really the history of tradable fertilizers, the only instance where it truly collapsed, where you had that kind of reduction in price over that short amount of time is the only instance. And, you know, in the industry, anybody that's ever been in the industry, always, that's the boogeyman. Yep. 08 is the boogeyman. Everybody talks about the boogeyman. And the boogeyman's come once, but there's been plenty of times where the market's reset, but it's just a lot more gradual reset because of the total global demand that we have to see. And it has to, the only way it can truly disconnect is a, is a worldwide incident like we saw in 08. Yeah, there is a path to very low fertilizer prices, but it is extremely narrow. I mean, we are walking on a ridge with 3,000 foot on either side drop. Yeah. And everybody, to your point, everybody goes back to 08 and says, oh, this can do the exact same thing. And we've got to remember 08 was a demand-driven bull run. This has been a supply-driven bull run. And what I mean by that is back in 08, I mean, it was insane. If you waited two, three, four days, that price was up $50, $100 a ton. You could still find it though. And what we figured out is that the retail sector had bought everything for the fall. They had then bought everything for the next spring and they had bought part of the stuff for the next fall. And we got all the way to the top of that uh, price increase. And also the demand died off. And we had a few days to contemplate. We all kind of looked at each other and said, wait a minute, there's still supply and there's more supply coming. There's no demand coming. Right. And all of a sudden they wanted to sell. And like you said, that emotional part of it started to take hold. There was nothing to stop it because we had plenty of supply and there was no demand there. This is almost a complete flip-flop. If you wait 30 days, that producer's just sitting back there saying, thank you for the breather. Mm-hmm. We're not dropping our price because we know we're still undersupplied and you need it and you've barely bought stuff for the next spring or for the next fall. Well, I think that just dovetails right back into when you think about nitrogen again. And I think I said that in the last podcast, nitrogen is energy. Mm-hmm. It takes natural gas, pet coke, coal to make it. Those commodities globally today are tight and real in a and relatively expensive globally in the natural places they need to trade. Again, what's happening with the conflict? Western Europe, 60% of their gas comes from Russia. Right. Okay, there's plenty of nitrogen, phosphate, uh, a small amount of potash, but definitely a lot of nitrogen production in Western Europe. That stuff is marginal cost production today. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is literally as bad as it could get. And the pri- the production delta on versus what we can produce it versus what they can produce it is just absolutely crazy because of the differential in gas prices. You're talking about $5 natural gas or $4 natural gas in the United States versus $55 to $60 natural gas. So when you have a $45 to $50 gas spread, one, think of everybody that has been around the LNG buildup and everything. That's that's why everybody's been building LNG terminals in the United States, because mm-hmm. we have this plethora of gas that we can't export to the rest of the world. That's about as free money as ever as anybody that's ever built any of those production facilities could take. And again, back to how the market trades is, those markets over there in Western Europe, yes, could we supply everything they need? No, because they don't have the infrastructure to bring it in. You know, they They have the production plants there for a reason. And it's not to import for the United States, but can they take some? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a lot more profitable for anybody here that has production facilities. So, you know, when you really think about, you know, the outlook globally, again, with what's going on with the conflict, how are natural gas prices in Western Europe supposed to go down? Yeah. I mean, I just it, probably not. And, you know, these came really the, the issue that was so big this year is they came into winter with no supply. They did not. They were not diligent enough about filling up their summer, you know, their summer storage of natural gas. So they started empty and they were tra- constantly trying to catch up. And that situation is not going to get better with the conflict going on. Right. And, and we haven't even seen what could be the worst case scenario. We're in a bad case scenario. Don't get me wrong. This isn't good. Mm-hmm. But they are. Russia is still supplying natural gas to Europe. Correct. What we haven't seen yet is, and I hate to even use this term because there's, they've actually got a nuclear option, but from a natural gas nuclear option, Putin could sit there and say, you know what? I'm shutting off your natural gas. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you're dealing with an entire region that is extremely, extremely low supplied. Mm-hmm. And those governments then have to make a decision. Limited supplies of natural gas. Am I going to give this to my people to cook their food, to heat their homes, to do all the things that people need to do on the day-to-day survival? Or am I going to give it to this plant to produce fertilizer? Yeah, and I, you know, you saw some of it this winter, right? You know, they were giving just enough to the manufacturing sector mm-hmm. to basically produce goods and services that were basic necessities, whether it was right. CO two for hospitals and stuff like that. I mean, that was literally to the extremity that they were already right. at this past winter with no conflict. Right. Fast forward, we got to get eight months down the road the next winter over there, and we're starting in what feels like a significantly worse situation. Yeah, in the futures over there, I mean, you look at the Dutch TTF, it's showing the same thing. For the longest time, uh, months ago, the price over in Europe, the natural gas price was going to start falling off about now. About April, we saw that price coming off on the future side. Now, we're talking $20, $30 in MMBTU equivalent months to come. Yeah. It, the market does not expect this thing to solve itself. Yeah, and I don't I don't know how it could while everything that's happening is happening. I so. hate to say it, it's almost a removal of power before something like that happens. And that's... Uh, that's a very, very scary proposition that, yeah. that, that eclipses anything from a fertilizer conversation. Well, and I just think the biggest thing is for all those listening, as scary as everything may sound, everything can change tomorrow. Absolutely. Good or bad. But with that, there's, there's so much volatility. There's so much risk in this market. Make sure you're working with your trusted advisors, mm-hmm. the people that have the information. You cannot be over-informed in this, in this market. That's the way to get through it from a risk-free standpoint. You know, I think it's really important that you know, we continue to have these conversations and provide this information to the, the farming network because wildly most of them, you know, the fertilizer market's not something that they can just go grab information from. You know, right. Josh, you got 22,000 followers on Twitter. There's a reason for it, right? Because yep. people need that information and there's not that much, many people out there to just go get it from easily. So yep. I think it's something that it's a huge part of their farming operation. You know, today you look at it for next year, $300, $350 an acre type cost. Those are the things that are keeping people up at night. It's keeping yeah. me up at night. I yeah. know it's keeping them up at night. You know, how we're going to navigate this situation and still grow big crops. Because the other side of it is, is the world cannot afford for the U.S. market to have a hiccup on production from a grain standpoint. Right. They can't afford for Brazil and Argentina to have a hiccup on grain production. So, you know, it's really important as we look to it, you know, how are we going to make more with less? Yeah. Yeah. You take these corn supplies that we're talking about having at the end of this year. And if you were to take those small numbers and you run it back to the corn market 10, 15 years ago, the market would have lost its mind. Yeah. And same thing on the fertilizer. We used to have plenty of inventories just sitting around waiting in case there was a demand bump or a production issue. We don't have that insurance anymore. We have learned to do more with less. 
if there's that hiccup, watch out. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree hundred percent. Well, Josh, I appreciate you making the trip up here and, and spending some time with us today and really appreciate and, and uh, love all the stuff you post on Twitter. And again, anybody that's listening, that's Jay Linville Furt on Twitter. He posts a bunch of good stuff about what's going on in the market, a lot of daily stuff, just something to keep you, keep you educated. Make sure you give him a follow. And thanks for coming, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Transitioning to our product of the month, I've got Dan joining me back here again, and I also have Parker Edgington from Yara. He's a sales agronomist for Yara here in the state of Iowa. And, uh, you know, here at Landis, we're transitioning a lot of our dry fertilizer impreg to Yara's Yara Vita ProCoat product, primarily their zinc and boron, copper, manganese, zinc, all-in-one product. With that, that is basically going to be a, a micronutrient impreg product onto our dry fertilizer. And Parker, uh, appreciate the partnership and uh, feel free to give us a little information on and background around the product. Thanks for inviting me here, John. One of the, I guess, the, the easiest explanation for Yaravita Pro Coat would be it's an oil-based micronutrient coating for any granular fertilizer. So this stuff, it coats every single granule in the blend, whereas it used to be just a phosphate was a carrier. This is the total blend, phosphate, potassium, pell lime, gypsum, whatever you want to put it on. I think that's such a, a unique thing about it. And I think, you know, from my experience around dealing with farmers, you know, the pushbacks always maybe been just coating the one product is only kind of a one, one trick pony for a solution. You know, I, when I look at this, this is just a really efficient way to look at your micronutrient platform. And Dan, I know, you know, some of the conversations we have, you, you love the idea of how this fits into the precision platform here at Landis and, and how we can really get prescription on uh, micronutrients now. Well, John, to me, this does put precision really into precision ag. Because when you look at uh, micronutrient applications in the past, we did foliars and um, we, we may have done a tissue sample and we saw that we had a need. And so then we go and, um, and we try to, to bulk apply uh, with the foliar application. And uh, it may work and it may not work, depends upon the environment, depends upon what adjuvant we had. We may not even have the micronutrient getting onto the leaves. Now you have a product that is specifically each granule is coated with all those micronutrients exactly uh, in a precise way. And uh, you put it in and you, you have a better opportunity for the plant to get the micronutrients that it needs. Um, this is really probably going to eliminate the foliar applications. There may be some rescue type treatments, but this is a way to take care. And, 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 and in, a, in a way, it's more of a diagnostic type of approach rather than a reactive approach. In the past, we go out, we see fields turning yellow, and uh, we go and say, hey, we need micronutrients. We could try to fix it. Here, you don't even see the yellow in the first place because the micronutrients are available to plants when they need them right up front. Uh, I, I think it's a great product. Well, I think, you know, just in relation to zinc, you know, zinc has always been a big carrier via zinc sulfate or, you know, we're we're big supporters of Mosaic's microessentials products. We've made the switch from the MESZ over to S10, losing that zinc. So when I look at it from a commercial side of the business, you know, people found value in having that zinc. And I wanted to find a way that we could get zinc back into the into the blend, but also within the same type of mentality of homogenous prill, where it, it, every part of the landscape of what we're treating or what we're spreading is getting it. And honestly, I think we've upgraded it because even when we were using MES, you know, we were only 
it was whatever the mezz touched. Now, when you talk about every single thing in the blend, the potash, the you know maybe SO4, MAP, S10, whatever we have in there, Pellime, everything in there that is being blended together has is going to be coated with Procoat, which just means all that extra opportunity for you know root interception and plant uptake, which is the only way to get these micronutrients into the plant. Yeah, well, it goes back into Liebig's uh, law that, that people have talked about, we've talked about before, that um, whatever is the, 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 the most limiting uh, nutrient is going to limit yield. I know individuals have talked for years um, when we started looking at yield monitors that we get into a field and all of a sudden the monitor is running at 280 to 290 and then it drops off, you know, 60, 70 bushels and we wonder why. Here is an opportunity to take to smooth that out and, and, and to reduce that loss because you have all the nutrients applied in the right concentration up front, all the macronutrients and the micronutrients. Our biggest challenge has been the micronutrients and trying to get an, an even spread of micronutrients. This is an opportunity to do it. Yeah. And even John, to your point, we're taking what was essentially one application or one product that we're putting on and we're doubling it, tripling it. Yep quadrupling your exchange sites and availability of a micronutrient is essentially the function of the distribution. Yep. So the more exchange sites you can get out there, the better. Well, and I think it was unique to give them some background just even on some of how you're getting these products into the formulation. Yep. So essentially take the zinc product, for example, is a, it's a uh, finely powdered version of zinc sulfate. So we take zinc sulfate and we grind it down to almost a microscopic powder and it's a pharmaceutical grade powder that goes into this. So it is a very, very high quality product. It'd be something you take as a zinc supplement yourself. So it's just, it's a very good product that stands up. Well, and I think the, the, the last key to touch on this is, you know, it is an oil-based product. And again, fertilizer guy coming from the industry, I think about all the different times where I've had dusty potash, dusty phosphates, whatever it may be. And the only way to cure that is to coat it with a mineral oil or some kind of oil to decrease the dust. Now we're doing that through the exchange of having a micronutrient carrier. And um, one thing I'd say for sure is anybody listening, look in the show notes. We're going to have some videos on what that looks like without it being coated and the differential of when it is coated. And again, you can see just the quality, especially the guys in the drill market. You know, this product was essentially created for the seed drill market in Western Canada, the Dakotas. That's where this was. This product first got started because of the ability for flowing, uh, lack of dust in the fertilizer. So all the guys in our territory that are strip till, this is literally the most ideal product for you as well. Yep, that's correct. So, and John, I would I would add one one final comment. We we talked earlier about the learning groups, and the whole purpose of those learning groups is to take soybean yields to 100 bushels field average and corn to 300. One of the ways you go on that journey is to get the even application and have the products out there, the nutrients that people need and the quantities that they need them across the field uniformly to get to those yields. We will never get to those yields without having products like this to give us uh, the concentration that we need in those quantities. No, awesome. Well, I appreciate both of you. Again, everybody for listening, we're going to have the zinc product as well as the boron, copper, manganese, zinc at basically every facility, all nine of our dry facilities this fall. It'll also be a great opportunity for you to qualify by using this for our Grow Rewards trip. So make sure you get, you talk to your local account manager about it, or please call 515-800-GRILL and call into Dan to get some more background on it. And again, guys, thanks for having coming on today. Yep. Appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to this month's version of the Grow Podcast. And most importantly, thank you for our guests that joined us this week. Hopefully we brought you a lot of good solutions for your farming operation. Feel free to look below in the show notes around additional information that we talked about here on the fertilizer side. Also, please look around uh, on some information with the Yara ProCoat product that we're launching this fall. We'll both have some information in the show notes as well as some videos of how it actually works within our own setups. Lastly, please call 515-800-GROW if you have any further questions around anything we talked about today, especially fertilizer. If you have further questions around what we talked about regarding the fertilizer markets and you want a little bit more direct touch, call 515-800-GROW and somebody within the Grow Solutions Center will get you in direct contact with myself and I'd be more than happy to talk about solutions on your own farm. Again, thank you for the support of the Landis business and thank you for listening.